As you know, for the last six weeks, we have been studying the kingdom of God. Uh, for the last five, we've been going through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 1, and making our way towards the New Testament. And the goal is to more fully understand the story of the king and the way in which we fit into that story. And this morning, Heather is going to continue that for us in the book of Numbers, hitting another very key moment in the life of Israel and as part of our past. Come on up, Heather. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. We pray now as we open your word that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would anoint Heather and use her to teach us your word. Lord, that we might live kingdom-first lives for your honor and glory. In Christ's holy name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I tend to be kind of an idealist. I have these very high expectations and thoughts of what life could look like, of what I could be doing, should be doing, have the ability to do. One of my dreams is to have a plot of land big enough to have a garden where my family, we could live off the land. We could grow all of our own vegetables and fruit. We would have some extra areas, just kind of forest for the kids to wander in. We would have um, some chickens for eggs. In my really, really optimistic times, we also have a cow, which I milk twice a day, of course. I make my own butter and cheese. We don't really go to the grocery store for much. We don't really use, we don't have a microwave, silly things like that. We don't have a dishwasher because what I would really do is in the evenings as I'm hand washing all of the dishes, this would be my time to pray and meditate, perhaps work through some issues from life. So this is my dream life. And then this happens. A couple of weeks ago, we had the dishwasher guy come out because there was something wrong with our dishwasher, and he says, yes, it's not working. <laughs> and we said, okay, and he said, I will order a new control panel. It'll be here in a couple of days. In the meantime, I would suggest that you hand wash your dishes. So for the past two weeks, he has not called, and I've been hand washing our dishes every night for two weeks, and it's a nightmare. <laughs> I do not know how five people use so many dishes in one day, and I'm pretty sure it's a conspiracy against me. I'm pretty sure my husband and kids actually have meetings of how can we use more forks? <laughs> can we use the formal setting of a fork for each course, for each meal? because there are a plethora of forks to wash every night. I can't even wash my own dishes, and yet I think that this ideal, beautiful life of living off the land with, with nary an appliance is something that I can attain, is something that I could do. 
I kind of think this is how I approach the Christian life. I have this ideal of what my participation in the Christian life, in the kingdom first life, is going to look like, of what I can and should be doing for God. These amazing things, because God is strong and I can do this. And then the dishwasher breaks. And I hit the reality of my everyday life and I am not sure how I'm gonna meet this challenge. I am not sure how I'm gonna keep going. I'm not sure how I'm going to do this, this big thing that I think God has called us to. Here are two truths about the kingdom first life. One is it can be amazing. It can be exciting. It can be so rewarding to participate in God's kingdom plan, and we will get to see amazing things. Here's the other truth. It is hard, and it is challenging, and you will at times wonder, is it worth it? How am I going to go on? What do I do now? Is God strong enough? Is this really what he wants for me? Today, we are going to look at a passage of when the Israelites come across this huge challenge to the thing that God has called them to. And we're gonna look at how did they respond, but we're also gonna look at how does God respond? Is he really faithful? Is he really loving? Does he really want what's best for his people? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. I know a lot of you spend a lot of your Bible study time in the book of Numbers. (laughs) Um, In my Bible, which is in ESV, it's on page 121 is the passage. I really don't know what page it is on your Bible, but if that's helpful, there it is. Now, here's where we are. Last week, Jason preached about this amazing thing that God has done, all of these plagues and and this demolishing of the Egyptian army and just crazy miracles to get the Israelites out of Egypt, to free them from slavery. And he has done this, and he has claimed them as his own. And now the Israelites are, are gods. They are no longer pharaohs to do pharaoh's work. They are gods to do God's work. And he has given them a constitution, what we might know as the Mosaic Covenant. And he has called them a nation. They are no longer this random people group. They are a nation, the nation of Israel. And now they are on the cusp of the land that is to be theirs. God has said, this is where you will live. This is your land. This is where you can be a stable people group through whom I will work, in whom I will work. Here you are, and I give it to you. And they are right on the edge. Are they going to take that leap of faith? Chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. And so... So God says, okay, send some people out and send some trusted people, some people you know care for you, you know have the best in mind for you. And skip ahead to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country. 
and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. So just go see what it's like. Go check things out. Now, here's the thing that Numbers doesn't tell us, but when Moses retells the story in Deuteronomy, we find out. This was actually not in God's original plan, this whole reconnaissance mission. This was something the people asked for. They said, hey, can we just kind of go and check things out, see which way we should go, see what the land is really like, and God allows it. God says, okay, even though, yes, I have been guiding you by a pillar of fire and cloud every day and you haven't had to know which way to go until now, sure, go ahead and check out the way. Even though I've told you this is a good land, if you wanna go and double check, go ahead. By all means, go check and see how things are. So going on this reconnaissance mission is not an act of disbelief because God is allowing it. It's not an act of disobedience. God says it's okay. But I'm gonna go ahead and let you know it's a little bit of a bad omen here. Is their confidence really in what God has been doing and saying? Or are they kind of wanting to check things out for themselves? So they go up, they spend 40 days going all over the land that God has said is going to be theirs. And they are just finding massive amounts of fruit and, and just, it's crazy. They're cutting off all these huge grapes to bring back and finding these amazing things. And there's this little note that, men, that Numbers mentions that they stopped in Hebron. Now Hebron is where Abraham was. It's in fact where Abraham conquered this huge group of kings and claimed a piece of the promised land as his own. They had been hearing all of these stories about Abraham since they were kids. And can you imagine walking through that land and saying, this is where it happened. This is where God took Abraham, one man in his household, and conquered all of these people. Now, I was never one of those people who thought I needed to go to Israel. I was never somebody who thought, wow, wouldn't that just be so cool and I would learn so much and just to walk in the, in the streets where Jesus walked because I kind of thought, you know, God works everywhere. The whole world is his. There's, what is so special about walking in Israel? This is not fundamental to my Christian belief, to my Christian growth. But when I went there, here's what I discovered it's a real place. Like, that was the mountain that Elijah ran down when he was on the run, and this is the plain where this happened, and, and this, is, this is the mountain, this is somewhere right here is where Jesus stood and looked out into Jerusalem and saw the temple and wept over them. These things really, truly, actually happened. All of these stories I've been hearing all of my life there was something real about them when I actually was there, when I saw the geography, and something clicked for me. Not that I changed my beliefs, not that I said, oh yes, this is true, when I didn't think it was true, but something became very real for me. And I think the Israelites had that opportunity. I think God allowed this reconnaissance mission because this is what it could have been. 
this place really is amazing. God was right. And this right here is where Abraham fought and won because of God. And this is going to be our place. This is going to be our home. I could build my house right here. I could farm here. My kids could wander over here. This could be our lives. So let's see what happens. This is what the result is. This is what happens when they come home. Chapter 13, verse 27. And they told the group, these are the the men, the leaders, the trusted people who come back, and they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. That's just an idiom to say it's extremely fertile, it's it's awesome land, this is where you want to live. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. That just means these um, crazy, big, strong warriors. Skip ahead with me um, to verse 32. Sorry. The land through which we had gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there were these Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. It's a scary place, guys. There are huge, scary warriors, trained warriors. And not only are they trained warriors, but they're cruel tyrants. They are going to chew us up and spit us out. And then chew us up again. Don't go there. And in fact, that is the logical conclusion. Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say if you came across this and you thought, hmm, what is the logical conclusion? I have now looked at, I've counted the costs. I have looked at how things are. It's a crazy place. This would put me and my family in danger. This would leave my 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 spouse, a widow or a widower, this would leave my children orphans if they're not killed along with it. Surely God did not call us to this. Surely God did not call us to something so dangerous, so wrong for our family life. And in verse 31, that is what they say. We are not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than us. They are stronger than we are. That is not something God would ask us to do. Now, what is the problem with this conclusion, really? Because isn't this kind of what we do every day? We look at things, we make spreadsheets, we make pros and cons lists, we consider, we weigh things out. What is the best decision for our family? What is the best decision for us? Is it to, oh, I don't know, go live somewhere where there are tanks and bazookas? Or is it to live here? where I can raise my children in the Christian faith. The logical decision would be this, and this is what the Israelites are doing. We are doing the logical decision. So what is the problem with this? Well, let's look at Caleb and Joshua's response. These are two of the men who went and saw all of the same things. Look with me um, back in verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. Let us claim this. We can conquer it. Let us take it as ours, for we are well able to overcome it. Skip ahead to chapter 14, verse 7. 
um, and this is Joshua now talking, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, and haven't we just experienced that huge redemption of us of, from Egypt? Can't we assume that he delights in us if he did that for us? If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. You think that they're gonna consume us? We can consume them. We can squash them like we would bread. We can eat them up like we would bread. You're afraid of them? Their protection is removed from them. Their gods are powerless compared to our God. That's not the logical conclusion, guys. The logical conclusion is to do what God told us to do. We have a history of God's power and love. In our own lives, we've seen it. Not just have we heard stories, but in our own lives, Josh says. And Caleb says, I like to call him Josh. Me and I are like this. This is what we are brought here for, is to take this land. God called us to a mission. He called us to a purpose. He didn't just save us from Egypt so we could wander around in this wilderness. He called us and brought us here to take this. Let's do it. And so now what do the people say? Well, now they say in verse uh, 2, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. And skip ahead to verse 10. Then the congregation said to them, to Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Josh, to stone them with stones. We have now gone from a possible logical conclusion to something a bit more exaggerated, something like mass hysteria. They are total, complete rebellion here. Forget it, you are completely wrong. We should have died back there. We should just die in this wilderness. We can't even do it. We're gonna kill these leaders and we're gonna go pick a leader and we're gonna go back to Egypt and beg Pharaoh to take us back. That's definitely the logical conclusion here. Here's the issue. Here's the heart of the matter. When it came down to it, Israel did not truly believe that God was strong enough and that he loved them enough. God had called them to a mission. He had redeemed them and he had called them to a mission to be the kingdom of priests for the wayward nations around them, to show them his salvation. And they didn't believe God was strong enough that he could do this thing. God has called us to be a kingdom of priests. 
And we are not going to be able to do it if we fundamentally don't believe that he is strong enough and that he loves us enough to want our best, to want the best for his kingdom and his kingdom people. I recently caught up with a friend um, from DTS, a close friend of mine. And she and her husband are, uh, right now they're on furlough, but they've been on the mission field in East Asia, in a country that's extremely hostile to Christians. And first I need to tell you something about her. I have never met someone who so thoroughly believed that God loved her. The way she talked about God and his love and her relationship with him was intimate and loving and personal. She adores God and she knows that God adores her. I also want you to hear something else about her. She is an amazing theologian and an amazing communicator. And she already in the States had a great ministry to women. Her heart was to connect other women to God, to let, to bring other women in into this love that she knew. But she and her husband felt that they were called to this country in the Far East, uh, in East Asia. And they, um, it was a hard decision because she had to leave this ministry and she wondered, am I really gonna be able to connect with women over there with the language barrier and the culture barrier and all of these things? And then they get there and you know what happened? She got a parasite, tore her body apart. And her son got a parasite, tore his body apart. And she lived for a year in chronic pain where she couldn't even get out of bed. Is this what you called me to, God? To this, this is what the ministry is? And then on top of that, a couple days before we had met, there had been a persecution of a Christian ministry in an area near theirs. And so I was asking her, do you guys feel this? Do you feel this persecution? Here was her response. We don't feel persecution. I mean, my husband's been arrested a couple times, but we don't really feel persecution. Um, what? Your husband's been arrested, but you don't feel persecuted? What kind of person is able to do that? Is able to go to a mission field with all of these fears? Is able to go and do this thing and leave something that they loved so dearly? It's the kind of person who knows God is strong and God loves me. Israel didn't have that. They didn't truly know God's strength and God's love, and so when it came down to it, they rebelled. And here's how God responds. Chapter 14, verse 10, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all of the people. So they're ready to stone all of those who are faithful to God, and the glory of the Lord steps in and stops them. And he says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done for them? 
I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Okay, I'm feeling God here because let me let you in on a little secret about the Goodman family mealtime. It's dinner time. And I call all of the children dinner. And there is much rejoicing in the land because they are starving. It's been at least 30 minutes since they've eaten. And they rush to the table so excited. And they come to their seats. And do these children who in front of the TV can go long periods of time without moving a muscle sit still in their seats? Oh no, oh no. They must dance in their seats and jump in their seats and flail about in their seats and lie on their seats and lie under their seats and crawl under the table and just continue to move around everywhere. And their mother and their father doth remind them, please sit down before you hurt yourself or spill your milk or throw your food as you have done yesterday and I the day before and the day before and the day before. But oh, this stubborn generation. <laughs> they continue to flail until at last, yes, one of them does fall and bonk his or her head. And then there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> to which the mother has very hard time summoning up any compassion and says, how long? How long will you ignore the pleas of your mother and father who obviously know what is best for you? So I'm feeling God because this has not been their first act of rebellion. They have continued to complain and grumble this entire time despite the fact that God performed all of these miracles, despite the fact that when they were hungry, he gave them manna and then he gave them quail and then he made water flow out of a rock and he's done all of these crazy miraculous things to take care of them. Oh, but oh no, they must continue to grumble. A lot of times we ask God, how long? How long do I have to be in this situation? But do we ever stop and think how often God God is asking that of us. How long are you going to ignore me? And then we have this beautiful interlude. Here are the people, this string tremolo down here, grumbling and grumbling. And above that is this beautiful flute line. Aaron, I'm not saying that the violins are grumbling and the flute is this beautiful instrument. There's this beautiful flute line soaring above it, clear and distinct, and that's Moses giving a glimpse of what it should be like, of what a faithful response is, of what it means to be a kingdom of priests interceding for others. Verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. If you do this, if you strike them down, the Egyptians are going to hear God. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell everybody about it. They have heard of you, O Lord. They've heard that you are in the midst of this people. And if you kill this people, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because God was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now 
Please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. First of all, it completely amazes me that God lets Moses do this. That God, in his power and might, lets Moses stand in front of him and challenge him, essentially, and say, please don't do this thing that you're set on. That amazes me. Secondly, it amazes me that Moses does this. Because here's a guy who has been listening to them complain for the entire time since they've left Egypt. I will turn this car around. Not only are they complaining, oh, yeah, but now they want to kill him and find another leader. And does Moses take God up on his offer? Okay, yeah, let's make a new people. That's got to be better than this. No. This is what it means to be a kingdom of priests. And God reminds, Moses, sorry, reminds God, you are faithful and this is what you promised. You have tied your reputation to these people. And if you don't do what you said, your reputation is on the line. God, this is who you are. You are faithful and you are loving. He reminds God who he is. I don't want to be Moses because it is much easier for me to call on curses on somebody else's head when they cut me off in traffic than it is to pray for the person who has hurt me, for the person who has challenged me, for the person who has done things to my family. I don't want to pray for them. But that's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. And we're going to move on because that's getting too convicting. God responds. Verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in my wilderness shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So here's what he decides to do. In summary, I won't kill them off. I won't get rid of Israel. I will fulfill my promise. Israel will step into this promised land. I am faithful to my covenant. But this generation, this Exodus generation, they're not going to see it. They will die here in the wilderness. In fact, I love how he puts it. Verse 28. As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, oh, it would be better for us to die in the wilderness. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. You will get exactly what you wanted. And here's the thing. In both his preservation of Israel and in his judgment, we see God to be a faithful God. God had created the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, to go out to the nations. 
and he had given them a constitution, the Mosaic Covenant, that in essence said, when you obey me, when you listen to me, when you believe what I say and trust me and act on it, then things will go well for you. You will live in the land and you will prosper. I'm not saying it won't be perfect. I'm not saying there won't be hardships, but you will live, in, you will live according to my promises. When, however, you disobey, when you show that you have no belief in me, that you don't trust me, that you don't think I really love you and want what's best for you, you will be exiled from the land and you will die. And now he is faithful to that covenant. They will not enter the land. And this is so important because the first 10 chapters of Numbers was spent telling why they have this, why this is here, why God's presence. What is so important about God's presence with them? The first 10 chapters talks about how there's this tabernacle in the center of Israel, that God's presence permeates everything, and that because of this, they have to protect, there are laws and instructions to protect the people, to protect themselves from being defiled so that they could live with God's presence in them, so that they could be who God created them to be, so that they could enjoy what he was given for them, and so that they could be the mission that he made for them. But how is Israel going to tell others and show others God's love and strength when they don't believe it for themselves? And God is faithful to his covenant in allowing this generation to pass away before he moves on with his plan. But here's the second part. Their rebellion does not thwart his plan. It does not change his character. It does not change what he is going to do. And in 40 years, when every last one of them, except for Caleb and Josh, those two who came back and said, this is good and we can do it. When every one of them in the whole entire nation over the age 20, except for Caleb and Josh dies, they will have a second chance and they will enter the promised land and they will take it. And that nation of Israel will settle down there. We are God's chosen people. He has, like he redeemed Israel from slavery, he has redeemed us from slavery. Slavery to sin and death. But it doesn't just stop there. He redeemed Israel from Egypt to a purpose, a mission. He redeems us from slavery and death to a mission and a purpose, and that is to participate in his kingdom. And that is a huge privilege. But we have to act on faith. We have to take that step of faith. We have to take crazy risks sometimes. Things that don't seem to make sense for our family lives or our finances or our careers. And it's gonna come down to this. Do you really believe that God is strong enough and that God loves you enough 
to want something more than the corporate ladder or more money or the best retirement plan or a good house or all of the things that everybody else around us wants? Do we want more than that? Do we really, truly believe that God is faithful to what he says he's going to do? That there will be justice, that all will be made new? Do we believe that? Do we believe that God really, truly loves us? Because if we do, it affects the trajectory of our lives and it affects all of our habits. There's an opera singer named Janae Bridges. She's 29 years old. 11 or 12 years ago, when she was a junior in high school, between her junior and senior year, she had never heard opera music. She had not been classically trained in the least bit. She was a basketball player and had a lot of promise, had a lot of scholarships coming to her. She was on the trajectory to becoming a professional basketball player when she suffered an injury. And so her senior year, no longer in basketball, which she has everything poured her life into. She decides to take choir. And the teacher recognizes, you have an amazing gift. And everything changed for her. Let me explain something to you. If you go into classical music, you don't start when you're 18. You start when you're six or seven or eight. You practice and you practice every day of your life and you dream of it every day of your life from the time you're a young age. But here's Janae at this age of 18, an unheard of old age to start something like this. And she decides, I wanna be a classical musician. I would like to sing opera. 11 years later, she just finished up playing a starring role in an opera with the San Francisco Opera, which is a huge, big one. She's received grants and recognition and awards. 11 years after this decision, this is completely unheard of. I tell you this because for Israel, for that generation, it was too late. It was too late to change their minds. In fact, they tried to. They said, oh, okay, just kidding. We're gonna go in and try and conquer this land. And God said, uh, I don't think so. And they went without God and they got killed and defeated. We are not at that point. Every single one of you in here, we still are at the point when we can say, I want this. I want this kingdom first life. I want to live something more than this. I want to change the trajectory of my life. I want to do something great in God's kingdom. How do you do that? You change the trajectory and you change your everyday habits. And in an interview, Janae said, practice, 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 practice. She said, there's a good bit of luck with getting where I got, but it was practice, practice, practice. She had to change all of her daily habits where it was no longer about basketball. It was about singing. It was about opera. And she did it. And that's what we can do too. That's who we can be. We can be a generation who lives for Christ. We can be a generation who lives the kingdom first life. 
It takes changing our trajectory. And it takes changing your daily habits. Thanking God, focusing on God, finding his joy, making decisions with our finances, even when they don't seem to make all that sense. Everyday decisions. Will you pray with me? God, you have called us to an enormous task, one with many challenges, with many hardships. I pray that we will find our strength in you, that we will believe that you are strong enough, that we will believe that you love us enough to do these crazy things that you call us to. I pray that you will show us how we can change our daily habits, how we can change our life, so that instead of a practice of grumbling in the wilderness and wandering around in nothing, we can find our home in you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.